big red and white van. It was a Chevrolet GMC, had big red and white stripes. The door didn't close properly. We had to kind of like finagle it just so to even get the thing to close. It was uh, traumatic to have this van as your childhood vehicle. But my, my parents needed it. I was the eldest of five kids. They needed to get us all from point A to point B. And I remember being so embarrassed about this van. So embarrassed because you'd not only look at it and it was appallingly eye-catching and ugly, but you'd enter into it and the evidence of five kids having recently gone to McDonald's or even not recently at all having gone to McDonald's, maybe months and months and months ago having gone to McDonald's, was typically scattered all throughout the van. You know, they had the old cigarette lighters in the bench seats. And you'd find your French fries in those French in those in those cigarette lighters often, and often changed to different colors and growing different sorts of things in them uh, as the days would uh, would happen. But mostly, I was embarrassed because I had learned to do at an early age what we do so often as human beings. I was embarrassed because I'd learned to find my own identity in looking around at other people. And then seeing what they thought of me. What is my self-worth based on what those other people thought of me as I looked at them for their approval? And if I'm really honest, that part of the story isn't an old part of the story. Looking around to other people for their approval is something that I still do. Something that you do too in this room. Something that you do in your jobs and how you work and the career that you've chosen for yourselves. Is what you do often in how you pick your course of study and what you're going through at university. Or maybe in friendships or relationships or the things that you purchase and buy or the way that you interact with people online. All working out who you are in relationship to what those other people think of you. And the thing is, it's not very good for us. You experience that. It doesn't feel great. As we do that more and more, it actually creates in us this anxiety and uncertainty, um, this uneasiness and insecurity. It's hard to live this way. It's hard to live with purpose and with courage, the sense of who we really are, where we're going in this world in this way. And what I want to show you this morning is the way that God is calling us forward in this church to be distinct from that. To live distinctly different lives as the children of God, not looking around at other people for our approval, to find our identity from them, but to live with a deeper and a richer and a truer and more awe-inspiring identity than any of those things as we live for God alone. So we're going to look at the way that we are a distinct community as a church living for God alone. And as we're doing that this morning, we'll have two points. We're going to look at who we are and what Paul says about that. And also about how we should live this distinct identity out. So consider our first point, who we are, with me as you look at verse 1. What Paul says there. Paul says this. And therefore, be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As I've thought about this verse this week, I've been thinking about the way that, that I often try to gain the approval of others through imitation. And maybe think of my experience having lived in the United States. Some of you guys don't know this, but I lived in Kentucky of all places for, for four years of my life. 
And in Kentucky, in that four-year experience, I learned that Kentucky was, was more than fried chicken and bourbon and horse racing. Uh, but I also learned that in Kentucky, people have pretty strong accents. And in my experience in Kentucky, I was mercilessly teased for being a Canadian and having a Canadian accent. It's pretty funny because, to be honest, I didn't know that I had a Canadian accent. I didn't know until one day after having been in Kentucky for a little while, I went back home and I, I heard some people around me talking, uh, just normal Canadian voices. And after having been immersed in Kentucky, I was like, oh my goodness, we have accents. Canadians have accents. I didn't even realize. But it was difficult because it was such a prominent thing that I couldn't even go a single day or maybe even a single conversation without my friends being like, wait, wait a second, Brad. Can you say house again? Is it house? Is it hoose? It's hoose, right? It's house. You got to talk differently. You know, I'd say, well, I was zigzagging my way through this on my bike. And like, zigzag? Hold on, stop. It's zigzag, Brent. You don't say zag, you say zaggy. You know, Brent, it's, you, don't, you don't get a shopping bag, you get a shopping bag. And they mercilessly tease me and made fun of me for my accent day in and day out until I decided that I better change my accent. Not because I'm embarrassed about it, because I literally can't have a normal conversation. So I began to change my accent. And it worked. I fit in a little bit better. As I adjusted my identity through imitation, I fit in. But don't laugh too hard at the story, because this sort of thing is something that we do all the time in our lives. We find role models and heroes and social media accounts to follow, to try to, to imitate something, to find our identity and our place in this world. As we do that, it's kind of awful. Because we're, we're pulled this way and that by opinions and clothing and lifestyles and career choices, behaviors of everybody else around us. And it's kind of like we're eating at the imitation buffet. The identity buffet. Trying to pick a little bit from here and there and everywhere to try and sort out who we are. But in the end, we just get this great identity um, food poisoning. It makes us sick. It's not good for us. In Christ City, Paul knows that. And Paul knows that there's something so much better for us than this. He says this, Therefore, be imitators, not of others, but of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Christy, this is who we are. We are beloved children of God. We have a Father who loves us deeply. Now, I still remember watching a friend of mine years ago playing with his son. And this memory is often on my mind when I'm thinking about these father texts in the Bible. And he was a little bit older, and it was apparent that he only had one son. He had one son, I'm not sure what the story was, but he had one son, he was a bit of an older guy. And he transparently delighted in his son. So one day I was at the pool, and we weren't there together. I just happened to kind of be creepily observing from, from the margins. I was reading a book, and then I put it down because I was watching them, and it was just so awesome I couldn't stop. Because this father was picking up his son and throwing him in the air and catching him in the pool and the water droplets were shining and, you know, the, the, the sunshine was, was over the whole thing. And they were delighting in one another. They were transfixed in the laughter that they shared together. 
and the joy that they had as father and as son. And in that moment, it was so clear that they're kind of like the kissing couple at the end of the romance movie where the world just kind of spun around and faded into the darkness around them. They were oblivious to all the noise that was happening in that pool. They didn't even notice. They're so caught up in this love for one another. See, this is how Paul wants us to live. Caught up in a greater joy. Caught up in a greater glory that consumes us. That fills us with the love of God. He doesn't want us to be distracted or seek attention from anyone else. He wants us to rejoice solely in the Father's love. Be imitators of God as beloved children. See, God's saying this to us right now through this text. He's speaking to us. He's saying, forget about everybody else. Forget about them. All the people that you're so eager to imitate and to please and to win a problem, don't think about them. Just look at me. Just look at me. That's where the acceptance and the peace and the stability that you long for can be found. Not looking over there, but looking to me. And Christ said, there is no greater love. There is no greater person in his glory to be caught up with than this God, this Father. Let me tell you a little bit about them, about him. This is the God who created all things. This is a God whose power is over everything who is absolute. This is a God who sustains our lives. A God who created this world, the intimately detailed and small to the magnificently big. This is the God who has never done any wrong and never will, who only does what is right and good all the time. This is a God who is more awe-inspiring than riding to the top of Whistler and looking out at the Garibaldi peaks and getting lost in the grandeur that is there. And this God, in all his power and holiness, he sees you as you really are. He looks into you. He knows you. You're laid bare before him. Your soul is naked in his presence. But he doesn't reject you. He doesn't reject you. He sees you as you really are, and he loves you. You don't even have to pay him by the hour to have him hear all your darkest secrets. He receives you and listens to you and loves you. He doesn't make you work hard to earn his approval. He provides for your forgiveness to the death of Jesus Christ, his son. He clothes you with the perfect life of Jesus and he blesses you as though you were exactly perfect like Jesus is. He treats you with the very love that he has for his son as he welcomes you in through his gospel. Not because you've earned it, because he gives you it as a gift. He welcomes you into his family as a gift of his grace. He doesn't call you ugly or inadequate or insufficient. He doesn't call you a failure. He looks on you with love and with mercy and with grace. He says, my beloved son, with you I am pleased. Grace said, you know what I want for you and I? I want us to know this. 
I want us to know this deep in our hearts so that we'll stop looking around for our identity and the approval of other people. We'll live for something richer and deeper and better and truer and more glorious in the love of the Father for us, his children. I want this because I know that it's so much better than what we're doing. I want this because I know that it will free us from constantly comparing ourselves to others. That's living under tyranny, friends. It's awful. I want you to know it so you'll be free to take your eyes off of yourself and the introspection that you're just stuck in. I want it so that we'll have a foundation for our lives that's solid, that's able to weather the ups of life and also the downs of life. So when the successes come, we won't be overly caught up in them. We'll know our Father, we'll know the gifts from His hands, we'll know our place as His child, and we'll be thankful. When the failures happen, we won't be destroyed by them. We know our Father, we know He's for us, He loves us, He's giving us all that we need, and He is enough. We know that we are secure, that we're beloved. And the reality is that all the other things that we work so hard to earn our approval from, they depend on our earning, don't they? They're not a gift from a Father who loves us, they depend on what we can manufacture. They depend on our beauty and our ability to maintain it, or our intellect and our ability to do well, or our success, or something else, maybe our fitness, or the age that we currently have. But friends, all of these things have an expiry date. Every one of them. But who you are as a beloved child of God will never expire. Not when the strength is gone, and the health fails, and the beauty fades, and even your mind fades. Who you are is perfectly secure in him. This is a stable and a sure identity. And we have it as Christians. It's beloved children of the Father. And this identity is supposed to work itself out in us by changing how we live. So look with me at our next point, our second point this morning. How we must live is I show you three things about our distinctiveness as God's children. We're going to spend the rest of our time considering this. The first thing about this is that God's children then are distinct in their behavior. They look different. Just look at verse 2. Paul writes, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the first thing that we're to do as God's children is to imitate God's character. But I'm going to be the first person to say, that's difficult for me because I haven't seen God. Right? You're like, how do I imitate somebody who I haven't seen? I don't know how he's going to live here on earth. Well, God's done something to help us with that, hasn't he? He's showed himself to us perfectly in Jesus Christ. by taking on human flesh, becoming human, and living life in real human history recorded for us in the Bible and uh And then we can look at him and see him there. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And in particular, Paul says, look at him so we can learn how to imitate God. Look at Jesus as he, quote, loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, when we look at Jesus, we learn about the love of the Father. And when we look at Jesus, what we see is that God is like this. God is a God who, in Jesus, entrusted himself to the Father in order that he could give himself in love to others, even suffering harm in the process. 
even to his friends who would abandon him and his enemies who would betray him to Jewish rivals who would accuse him falsely and seek his death and to Romans who would eventually murder him on a cross. And even though he suffered, God used all of Jesus' suffering, all of his giving of himself over for good. Through Jesus' suffering and entrusting himself to the Father in this way, giving himself in love in this way, God accomplished our salvation. This is how we are saved. As Jesus' death stands for the death that we deserve before a holy God. As his perfect life stands for the the wrecks of lives that, that we live. So we can be given grace, welcomed in, and loved as children. And even though he suffered, God used his suffering for good by Jesus going through his humiliation, the cross, coming out the other side to the resurrection, and being exalted as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, as the, the author of new creation life, entering into this world to make something new that's truly good and beautiful and transformative. See, Christ City, we have in Jesus, what we see in Jesus is that the love that we are to live outwards of children of God isn't just a little bit of love off the top and the margin of our lives. See, truly Christian love is a sacrificial one. Truly Christian love gives in ways that are costly and inconvenient as we give to others as Christ has given himself for us. Walk in love as Christ loved us, Paul says, as he gave himself up for us. You know what's a fragrant, pleasing thing to God? It's doing this. Paul says this is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And as we do the same, it's a fragrant offering to him as well. Now, I want to be the first person to say that I really like this idea. But I like it as a theory. Right? I like it as some beautiful dream and picture. I don't really like it when I have to live it in reality. It's hard. It's hard. You know, in Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, Brothers Karamazov, there's an excellent little discussion about this. I'm going to read part of it for you. It's pretty awesome. Because here, one of the characters is this old monk, and he's talking with someone who's struggling with the idea of Christian love, and he tells a story that he's heard from this old doctor, and he says this. And so this is a doctor speaking in the story. I love it. He says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. Isn't that true? In my dreams, he said, I have often come to making enthusiastic schemes to the service of humanity. And perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been sudden, suddenly necessary. And yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. Oh, those people. Stop blowing your nose. Go outside. Uh, I become hostile to people the moment that they come to me, he says. And as the old monk recounts this story, he concludes... Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. 
Men will even give their lives if only the ordeal does not last long, but is soon over, with all looking on and applauding as though on the stage. But active love is labor and fortitude. You see, Christian love, as it's worked out in our lives, is usually seen in the unremarkable. It's not this, this thing that gets everybody's attention. It's the daily sacrifices of our lives lived. Live for the good of others. Sacrificing for ourselves. It looks, it looks insignificant. But it changes us. It changes those around us as we live with endurance, imitating Jesus who gave his life for us. You see, Christ said, you will be most distinct as children of God in this world when you love one another sacrificially day in and day out over the long course of your lives as Jesus Christ has loved you. But it's hard. And when push comes to shove, you won't be able to. You won't be able to unless you do something counterintuitive. You know how you can begin loving like this? Not by working harder. Not by white-knuckling it, just trying your best. No, it happens as you stop looking at those around you. Start to turn your attention heavenward. To delight in the God who has loved you in Christ Jesus. To receive his love and forgiveness of you and your sins as a gift. To begin to treasure him, to have his love poured out into your heart through his Holy Spirit. That's where the power comes from. Growing in loving him. Loving him more and more and more. It's never a waste to be spending time with God. To love, to worship him, to pursue him. See, Christian sacrificial love, it's something that's admired by everybody in this world. It's a beautiful thing that universally is admired today. And yet, without knowing the love of God for us as Father to Jesus Christ our Lord, we are not empowered to live it. Not day in, not day out, not when it's hard. Not knowing that when we fail, we can receive his grace and his forgiveness and be welcomed back. Not with his spirit empowering us day by day. And this is a positive bit about our behavior that's distinctive as children of God. If you share about this sort of love out in the streets to anyone, maybe here, even in the theater, who's working here, it's not very offensive. Right? It's like people are like, okay, that's a bit weird, maybe, but but that's not an offensive thing that's distinctive about you as a child of God. And yet our behavior as children of God isn't seen just in these positive distinctives, but also in some negative ones. Look at verses 3 to 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Man, this is the part we get nervous about, isn't it? These are the verses that we're just less comfortable with than that first couple of verses. But do you see what's happening as we have some anxiety even as we look at these verses? 
What's happening in our hearts is that, is that we're getting a little bit uncomfortable being thrown in the air uh, by our father at the pool. And we're starting to look around at what everybody else might be thinking of us. Starting to feel a little bit foolish. We've, we've broken our gaze with the father. We've forgotten his goodness and his glory. How he always wants good things for us. But beloved children willingly and courageously obey even verse 3, which says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Not even a hint of it, as is proper among saints. What Paul is saying is this. He's working out the ethic of love that we're to have as God's children by prohibiting three things. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but I think you'll see that it makes sense. He's working on this ethic of love first by saying no to sexual immorality. And sexual immorality in the Bible, it refers to the use of our sexuality against God's good intentions for us as he's created us and as he's made us. Which is for it to function exclusively between one man and one woman and the covenant of marriage. That's how God's made it. That's how he's designed it for our flourishing and for our good. And we may wonder how Paul could go from love like Jesus to don't be sexually immoral. Like, what's the logic here, Paul? How, how did you make that transition? Well, there is a logic to it. Logic is this. According to the God of the Bible, sexual immorality is not loving. It's not good. See, it's easy to see this, I think, in things like um, pornography, where so much abuse happens, right? There's, there's, there's ways that we can see that sexual immorality in certain spheres is harmful. Uh, lots of people are caught up in it in ways that are just destructive to them. But it's also true, I think, in general of the selfish way that our culture embraces sexuality. Just dating and using one another and then moving on to the next person. Right? Using and then discarding, being used, being discarded. This is a selfishness to a sexual immorality that is destructive to human beings. See, sexual immorality isn't interested primarily in the long-term flourishing of the other, which is what the covenant of of marriage is supposed to be about in Scripture. It's interested in selfishly achieving what's best for me as I follow my desires. And Christ said, we live in a world today where our desires are upheld and praised and not really critiqued. But think about your own life. When has pursuing the things that you wanted, when has feeding your desires in every circumstance, when has that led to your good and to your flourishing? If you blew your savings on the car that you always wanted, or the motorcycle for maybe some of you people, right, and you just bought those things, how would that work out for you? If you committed adultery with the woman that filled your attention or the man who captivated your mind, how would that work out for your family? If you ate everything that you desired all the time, would it lead to your flourishing? Would it lead to your good? No, it it wouldn't. And the reality that Paul is working with here is that God is a good God and a good creator. And in the Bible, we don't trust every desire. We know that there's something else that's happening here, something called sin. And that we're morally responsible for the way that we pursue desires that are opposed to God. And the Bible would even teach that they actually bring harm on us in our lives. And if God is our creator, he doesn't want us to just be like, hey, get rid of all that fun stuff that you're doing. Stop doing the fun things, guys, and just come and love me. 
That's not what God's doing. What he desires for us is something so much better, more gloriously good than anything else that you could imagine. There's a great, great quote by this, uh, by C.S. Lewis about this. In the weight of glory, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. As we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Christ City, we are far too easily pleased. So, so Paul, in the interest of, of working out this Christian law, he prohibits sexual immorality. And then second, he prohibits any moral impurity. Moral impurity is just this. It's just sin. It's just living against God's good commands for us. But in Scripture, uh, there is a way that, that we're to understand living against God's commands that's a little bit different than we're used to. Because I think when we think about living against God's commands, we can think of those people that may be especially holy people that seem to just have a lot of concern about all the details of their lives, and they're all uptight about all the external things uh, in their lives. But in Scripture, what we see is that Jesus teaches us that the purity of our lives is supposed to come not in a hypocritical kind of outward show, but from hearts that have been transformed in relationship with God. So that the purity of our actions and our righteousness are flowing out of hearts that delight in the Father. To go back to the illustration, it's that we're to live all of our lives rejoicing in, locked gaze with the Father, throwing us up and catching us in his delight, so that that place that inner purity and love for God, being loved by God, transforms us outwardly. That's how it's supposed to work. The third thing that Paul prohibits, though, is covetousness. And to covet is to desire what others have in order to benefit ourselves. And covetousness makes sense, I think, in this context the most, intuitively. Because to want what someone else has in that way, I think, is the very definition of self-love, right? It's the opposite of Christ's self-giving love. It's wanting that thing for me. And we do this all the time. We, we covet all the time. I do it all the time. I envy people's nice houses and cars, and I even uh, uh, envy often um, other pastors' churches, <laughs> Right? You probably don't do that in the same way that I do that, but there's a way that I have a covetousness about uh, the success or the blessing that other people seem to be having in their lives. You do it maybe by looking at other people's relationships and wanting them for yourself. Maybe wanting some of their possessions. Or wanting some of the blessings that they seem to have and, and, and that God's poured out on them and you want them for you. And it's working itself out in you this way so that some of you can't even congratulate one another when something wonderful happens, right? Because you're just so caught up in envy, you can't even get yourself to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. But think of how freeing it would be to live contentedly as a beloved child of God. Think of how freeing it would be to get your eyes off of yourself to know that you have all that you need in him. It would free you to rejoice in what others have rather than envy it. It would free you to delight in the blessings that God has given to others. You see, Christ, we have riches in the Father. We have riches in him. Unbelievable riches. We have all that we need and more God has provided for us in Christ. 
See, Paul knows that we struggle to live distinct lives. He knows that. So he writes to us at the end of this passage in verse 6, is, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. See, plenty of people, even some who claim to be Christians, they'll try to tell you today that what Paul says here is wrong. It's not right. They'll try to say that, well, today, you know, we've moved on quite a long time from Paul or 2,000 years later. We need to be a much more nuanced group of people. We have this kind of chronological snobbery that thinks that we just see things more clearly than, than they did back in those days. They'll say, hey, we need to be more sensible and modernize the church and just kind of get over it already. But make no mistake, these are empty words. Words that are based off of a desire to find our approval in the eyes of others. And to look instead to a world that is ever-changing its morality. Ever-changing and shifting the goalpost that it's aiming at as it moves forward. See, how do we know that the things that our world is pursuing and wants us to get on board with will lead to our long-term flourishing. We're so much further than we were even 100 years ago in the progressive sense. Yet, I think if, if what they were saying was true, wouldn't we see less anxiety and less depression and greater flourishing as we throw off all the weight and the shackles of Christian morality? But we haven't seen that. We've seen the opposite. Don't be deceived by empty words. They will not lead to life. See, we're children of God and our distinctiveness must be seen in our behavior, but also in our relationships. Look at verses 7 to 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So what sort of relationship are we supposed to have with the world around us, with our friends in the city who don't yet know and love Jesus? Well, Paul says... In verse 7, that we should not be partners with them in the things that they do in opposition to God. He says that we should not participate with them in verse 11. He says that actually we're supposed to be people that are somehow living in a way that exposes these deeds of darkness, the unfruitful works of darkness, by the light of our lives. I think we wonder, looking at these verses, what does that mean? Am I supposed to be someone that's just got a pair of binoculars in hand all the time, and I'm examining my friends and my neighbors, looking to point out, hey, you know, stop it. Don't do these things. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that what Paul's talking about here? It's not. This is not what Paul's talking about at all. Paul's just highlighting that our distinctiveness as children of God means that we're light in a world of darkness. And that by our existence as those that are uncompromised followers of Jesus, there's an exposing reality to the, the character and the distinctiveness of our lives and our relationship with others. And sometimes I think, if we're really honest, we don't really want to do it anymore. Have you ever felt this desire to stop being distinct? I mean, I have. Right? The, the pressure comes and you're like, man, I just want to fit in for once. I just want to fit in. I don't want to be the person standing on the word of God anymore. 
But we must not do it. Because our distinctiveness as light is a blessing that we get to participate in for the good of those around us. In Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus said that the church, his followers, are to be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, and the salt of the earth. And each of these metaphors is meant to communicate the way that God's people are to be this distinct thing in the world, shining forth the way to a life that is better than the one that's being lived around. Shining forth the way to an alternative way of being in this world that is truly good. Christ City, I am confident that we have the best message in town with the best results, with the most fruitfulness, living distinctly as children of God in the gospel. We're to hold fast and be distinct. Paul's saying that by our distinctiveness, living in our neighborhoods, we shine the light of the truth of God into the lives of those around us. They see what's going on, how beautiful we are in him. And the key thing here is not to compromise our light. Don't be compromised then in the way that we are living. Rather than be full of anxiety and fear about who we are, we're to live with our eyes locked on the smiling face of our beloved Father and live for Him with courage for Him alone. And we do this not with condemnation, but with grace. Because Paul says that we too were once darkness in the Lord, right? We're not any different. This is not about being self righteous. It's about being distinct, knowing who we are, and sharing the grace and the love and the mercy we've received from God, sharing it with those around us. We will only be distinct. We will only be able to do this if we live uncompromised lives. The third thing I'd like to show you is that God's children are distinct in their thanksgiving. Look at verse 4 and also verses 18 to 20. Paul says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And be filled with the Spirit, he says in verses 18 and 20. And give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christina, can we be honest for a second? I think we really like to complain. I think we really like to fix. I'll speak for myself personally. Maybe you can just decide if, if you're included in this. I like to look at what's wrong. The things that are missing. I like to grumble about situations and circumstances. I like to share when people ask me how I'm doing the bad things first. Maybe even only the bad things. I think we get easily self-focused and negative. But when we're full of complaint, it's not good for us. There's this bitterness and depression and misery that go with it. And in that process, it's clear that we've forgotten who we are as beloved Delighted in children of God. Do you know what's going to characterize God's children in this world? And this world is broken and fractured, where anger and bitterness is just normal out there. You know what will characterize us and set us apart as being distinctly different? Giving thanks. Giving thanks to God always and for everything in Christ Jesus. And we have so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful for. We have more reason to be thankful on our worst days than the world around us has on their greatest day of prosperity. Because we have Jesus. We are beloved children of the Father, forgiven of our sins. 
granted an inheritance in Christ to know God now, be full of his spirit, be really truly changed as we walk with Jesus now, but also be promised a future with him. Promised a time when he comes back, when all will be made well. This world will be whole and will live with God in his glory and in his love forever. It's the God of our universe is our father. Let's give him thanks. We can practice this from the little bit to the big. Right? I like to do this practically. When I give thanks, and I'm trying to make more and more of a practice of this in my life, I like to start small. I say, Father, thank you for the coffee that I had this morning. I usually start there. If you've prayed with me and walked with me, you know that. You've heard me say that. I mean it. I'm thankful for the coffee. Thankful for my home. Thankful for my children. Thankful for my family. I, I, then I, I kind of move into the bigger things. I'm thankful that I have a father, you, my God, that you don't look at me and reject me because of the sin that's filled my life this week. You, you give me forgiveness. You wash me clean. You welcome me in. You love me. You delight in me. I spend time in worship and in praise. Christ, say, this is a kind of thing that's supposed to characterize our lives. You know, this week, well, not this week, you know, this last year, 2020, has been the hardest year of my life personally. And I know I'm young, and I know that there might be harder years in the future, but it's been the hardest one to date. And towards the end of 2020 in particular, I found that I was just feeling depressed and anxious. There's a bitterness that was seeking deep into my soul. And I realized I'm not thankful at all. I'm not practicing Thanksgiving. I'm not living it. I'm not obeying this scripture or others that are talking about it. I've forgotten that I am a beloved child of God. Despite any circumstance, I have enough in him. And I I began to try to to walk in repentance. I made efforts towards Thanksgiving. I begin my mornings and the hard mornings. And my crap is going down and just not a good morning. And I start singing a praise song. I just would sing out loud and praise to God. And I started thinking through my life and giving praise and thanksgiving to God in particular for definite things in order to bring glory to him, to to, to saturate myself in the goodness of his blessing in me in Christ Jesus. And you know what? It changed my life. It changed me. When I began obeying this text of scripture, following God in this way, it changed who I am. I still struggle I'm going to struggle a lot in the future, but I share this to point out that this is the sort of thing that we're going to be doing, fighting for, that makes us distinct as children of God in this world. Christian, in conclusion, our world is confused and divided and living in an anxiety-ridden identity crisis, looking all around for approval to those around them. But we've got something so much better than that. We've been seen for who we really are and loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ. So let me ask you, who are you imitating? Who do you have your eyes on? Whose approval are you seeking? God has called you to be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness pointing forward to the life that is truly life. But you will only do these things if you live with your eyes fixed on him. So let me challenge you. Live today... Moving on to this week, live for an audience of one. When you feel the pressure and the anxiety of looking to those around you, remember, who am I seeking? Live only for the audience of one. I've been doing this a lot lately. It's been so helpful for me. Just reflect and stop 
Consider who I'm truly serving, whose approval I'm seeking. Live for an audience of one. Then you will be full of courage. As you receive the love of your father, delighting in him, loving him, imitating him, you will be brilliantly distinct as witnesses for God's love and grace in this world. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your help. Uh, Father, we need your help to make your word shine bright in our hearts. So let me pray for that now. Lord, I, I ask that you would cause your Holy Spirit to, to take whatever has been true from things that I've tried to say this morning and plant them deep in our hearts. So we would be changed by them. So we would be changed from living the way that we're so accustomed to living and live with courage for you as our God instead. Make us bold witnesses for Christ. Let this community, Christ City Church in Kitsilano, let it be distinct in Vancouver, holding forth a way of life and love that is gloriously beautiful as we live together as beloved children, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We ask these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.